Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Swan Bitcoin is the best way that I've found to buy Bitcoin on a dollar cost averaging basis. Dollar cost averaging is when you just buy a little bit at a time consistently over time. So you get time in the market. You don't have to worry about timing the market. You don't have to watch the price and act like a trader. That's not what Bitcoin's for. Bitcoin is the most advanced savings technology ever invented. So you want to save in Bitcoin, you can use DCA. And to use DCA, you can use Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin, that's all they do. They do DCA for Bitcoin. So you can buy a little bit daily, weekly, monthly, all automatically, whatever you want. Small amounts, big amounts. And it has the lowest fees in the industry, lower than Coinbase, lower than the Cash App. So figure out how much you want to save, then set it and forget it. To get started, visit swanbitcoin.com slash in it. That's the website associated with this podcast. So go to swanbitcoin.com slash in it and set it up in less than five minutes. Dana Middleton is who we have today. She is CEO of Bright Light Immersive, a marketing agency that specializes in mixing reality with virtual and digital elements. And it's totally relevant to the topic on this show because Bright Light works on that border blending physical and digital experiences. A little bit more about Bright Light Immersive first. It's a creative technology company that builds immersive and interactive experiences for brands and marketers. And in my view, what makes it stand out is that it focuses on that integration of physical and digital brand experiences as seamlessly as possible. So it's one unified experience. Bright Light Immersive is announcing this week a first-of-its-kind platform that lets brands design and manage omni-channel customer engagements. And the team that designed the platform, which is called Lighthouse, has spent decades helping brands create unique and differentiated immersive and online experiences. And so now with Lighthouse, all that knowledge and experience is rolled up and assembled into a platform that anyone can use. A little bit more about Dana Middleton. Her storied career in marketing started at HP, where she worked on innovative technologies and marketing strategies that are credited with being the earliest examples of consumer participation in marketing campaigns. After that, she did a few other interesting things, wrote some books, very accomplished person, and now she's at Brightlight launching this platform. So the topics that we discuss in the interview include the shift to online commerce. Will it go away? Is it here to stay? And likewise, the employee experience in the dawning age of remote work. How can companies virtualize their cultures and bring the experience of working at a company to their employees no matter where they are? We also talk about the retail experience of automotive, cosmetics, grocery shopping, and the importance of social interaction and digital experiences, data, and the challenge for brands to integrate their data streams about their consumers, which they already have, to use it to create true value-added experiences that evolve over time and that adapt to new consumer behaviors. And we get into more detail on the Lighthouse platform. So here we go. Dana Middleton. Hello, Dana. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I do have my earbuds in. I can hear you great. Let me just check levels. Nice setup you got there. Thank you. Thank you. Most of, uh, I don't know if we talked about this, but most of the guys that are in Bright Light are former audio guys too. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, they were, came out of entertainment actually, working with a lot of 
recording stars and studios. So very cool. Yeah, I know Justin is. Uh, we bonded on that at one point. Yeah, yeah, and so is John. It's funny because my husband's an audiophile, not in the recording realm, but certainly in the traditional. I can tell you all about paper versus metal dome tweeters, and probably <laughs> most people couldn't talk about those things, but I can. <laughs> Well, Dana, it's really great having you. We met through a mutual connection at your company, Brightlight. When I heard about your background, I was really uh, interested to talk to you because it's really fascinating. You've had a long career and you've seen a lot of different stages in technology. And uh, I really wanted to have this conversation. So thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, David, for having me. I really am uh, happy to be here. So let's just get started. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Brightlight. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I've had a long uh, career. So started long ago uh, in marketing when we didn't think about marketing the way we do today. If you think about the the transformation that's happened in marketing during my career, it's pretty profound. Um, I spent the longest stint at Hewlett Packard. I was there for 16 years and wore almost every marketing communications hat there was at HP. And during that time, obviously saw it transition from being very much about television, primarily supported by print and some other tactics, um, did my share of radio recordings and billboards, uh, but really into the online stage. And that, I, I would say that really marked the first big transition in my career was early 2000s. We were producing an amazing campaign for printers that really was about self-expression. And we had Gwen Stefani and a bunch of stars. And the tagline for the campaign was, what do you have to say? And for the first time in history, people could actually respond via the web. Obviously, we didn't have social at the time. Really, they were in an infant stage, didn't have mobile. But HP really was not interested in hearing what people had to say at all. And that was a key aha for me because in my entire career, marketing had been really about persuasion and the science of persuasion. How do you get people to think differently about a product or service? And suddenly, I really understood that in order to be an effective marketer, you really needed to understand the science of participation. And that really led to my first book, actually. Which was called what? Marketing in the Participation Age. Participation Age. Yeah. So participation was used as like a a way of enticing people to, I guess, engage with the brand, but it was also generating all this data that would have been a gold mine and would be considered that today. And they're just, I mean, to be charitable, there just wasn't probably like the infrastructure to even deal with the data or, or even a process for it. Right. Or if someone did have a a point of view, there was no uh, channel or input for that at the time. If you, if you think back to those days, I know it's sometimes hard for us to remember that those days really existed. So yeah. so really that set the course for me. I left HP shortly after that just because I wanted to experiment with some of those ideas. I went to a company called Moxie Interactive, which is owned by Publicis today, but what really was the first agency of its kind to put creative media and technology all under one roof. Again, something we somewhat take for granted mm-hmm. today, but I, I really oversaw innovation, analytics, data. I pioneered the paid social media practice for Moxie. From there, I uh, got to play with a lot of those ideas that set the seeds for the book. About that same time, Publicis acquired Performix from Google. So if you recall, 
Performix or DoubleClick was this, I think still today, the second largest acquisition that Google has made, but it would have been a conflict of interest for them to keep the services side of the business. So Publicis bought it Hmm. and I took the helm of Performix at that point, which led us to really transform that business from a US only paid search business to a global performance marketing company. So I spent about four and a half years uh, doing that. From there, I went on to Twitter and ran global business marketing at Twitter, oversaw building out the marketing team that supported sales around the globe. And then I was working on book number two about that time, which is called Grace Meets Grit, which is really about women in leadership positions and differences in leadership style. And so I spent about a year and a half working with a private equity firm coaching their portfolio executives. And so from there, I went and um, led a private equity-backed company called Ansira, which is a 100-year-old marketing and services and technology firm in the brand-to-local space. And so right about that time, a little after that, is when I met the folks at Brightlight Mm. and started first really in an advisory capacity working with them and then just really became compelled with the solution and thinking about how really we need to better connect experiences across online, physical, and virtual worlds. And so so that's how I, I got to Brightlight. That's cool. So wait, so Moxie, I think in my notes here, you you worked on AR and VR back then, right? Yeah, I did really early days, right? Yeah. What did that look like back then? Like what kinds of campaigns were involving those technologies? It was less about campaigns and more about stunts or specific unique activations. So we had some great progressive brands. If you think about Verizon being a key client or L'Oreal being a key client, a lot of them were experimenting. And of course, we advocated what I would still advocate today is take a portion of your budget and do some experimentation and see what works and what doesn't. And so, of course, we were playing with those technologies even way back then. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I... As you're talking, I'm realizing that there's this thing that I've noticed that agencies and brands do, which is they use emerging technology to run a campaign that in itself, really the campaign is about the fact that they're using the technology and they build a campaign around that. So like you would have like a VR and AR experience, but really the engagement would come from like the videos about it and the sharing about it. And I perceive that that's still the case today. I don't know if you agree, but like, do you think that we're going to transition soon to those mediums being the primary engagement mechanism? Like, what's it going to take us to get past this novelty component of these new media? I actually think COVID was a huge transformer in Mm -hmm. that way. Uh, Just because if you think about how customers and even employees on the internal side had to fluidly move between online, virtual, and physical and try to figure out how to reconcile those. And I don't think we're going back. So grocery apps, I think, are a great example. Most grocery apps were built, either whether they're the individual store apps or something like an Instacart in 2016. And I didn't use it in 2016. Almost no one used it in 2016. (laughs) And then 2020, it went through the roof. Mm. And now, will I ever set foot in a grocery store? Absolutely, I will. Will I continue to use my grocery store app? Yes, I will. And so I think the real tipping point for brands is how do I match and pace with my customer across those different realms? And obviously, there will be new emerging technologies that they'll want to test in order to 
continue to match in pace with this. A great example also happened last year, kind of in the midst of COVID, but Lululemon bought Mirror, the exercise device that actually goes in your home. And so suddenly they have a way to interact with their customers, not only in store, but in home as well as online. And again, how do you match and pace with your customer across those really to create more than just being a yoga pants provider, Mm -hmm. right? We're suddenly helping them facilitate their desire to be someone who I think what they call it is your sweat brand. They want to be that sweat partner with you. Mm. And so I do think that has become a tipping point in terms of brands really thinking about experiences versus just a technology stunt. And we're going to use the latest and greatest technology stunt. And when we were using AR and VR, we weren't thinking about experiences in that holistic way. Right, right. And that brings you to Brightlight. So Brightlight is actually, maybe you could just give us an overview about what it is. I know you have like the services side and you have a platform that's really exciting. What is Brightlight? Sure, we, we do. Brightlight did start as a really a services-based organization, building permanent installations, event activations, immersive experiences really for a number of key brands. And one of the things that they noticed is that each time they would do one of these activations, they built a set of technologies to help better support the experiences and better deploy more effectively and reliably, build, create, deliver, manage, measure those experiences. Mm -hmm. And so over time, they realized that, gee, why are we throwing away this technology every time? Let's actually build a platform that enables this. And I think our timing couldn't be more perfect because this platform really does enable you to operationalize content delivery, whether that be in a online space, in a virtual space, or a physical space, it really does a great job of standardizing physical experiences, which is the key differentiator. Obviously, people were working on experiences in online, some in virtual, but it's very rare to find doing the hard work of trying to standardize how do you make sure that that experience is consistent if you're trying to address 100 locations across the U.S. in each one of the rooms is different. Maybe the screens are different, but trying to replicate it, that and manage it and measure it is something that our software does. Yeah. For people who don't know Brightlight, could you just walk us through like a couple of projects? Because they're cool as, they're very cool. But like, just to add some color around like what you guys do. Sure. So if you think about Capital One has cafes throughout the United States, and each one of those cafes, again, has a very different footprint. Mm-hmm. How do you create an employee experience that's consistent and or a customer experience that's consistent across that cafes? You know, we're working with the company to really take their content and standardize it and actually deliver it to a variety of different surfaces. So that surface could be a mobile phone, it could be screens in the room, et cetera. So that's an example of what we might do. For Sutter Health, we created a great experience for fundraisers and donors where the donors could come in and even do an immersive surgical experience. The physicians actually competed against one another in that environment. And we built it in such a way that each person came in with a bracelet. So we knew a lot about that donor when they walked up to a specific installation Mm -hmm. and were able to customize that experience for them. So it's amazing. Each day, I feel like even though I've been with Bright Light a while, I hear about another amazing experience that they've done or an installation that they've done, I think, way before their time. So um, it is really cool stuff. And to your point earlier, it continues to evolve as new technologies come to play. 
really creative people, just like even the ideas they came up with, I, I don't know where they come from. They're really cool. And in some cases, it's our ideas, and we do have an amazing creative team. And in other cases, it's how do we bring to life someone else's ideas, whether that be another agency partner that's working in uh, the client or even internal, the client already has the creative, but they want to create a much richer experience. Oh, I see. Right. Certainly one of the things that we saw this year was really how do we do this for employees? As I mentioned, not only for customers, but uh, if you're going to have an employee meeting and you're tired of just having Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, how do you create a really rich interactive experience for employees that's much more immersive. And how do I choose which ones do I do that with versus having a standard Zoom meeting? So we do a fair amount of internal work as well. Okay, so OC Vibe, that was an interesting project too, right? Oh yeah, I haven't talked about OC Vibe, but yes, that is an amazing experience. Residential combined mixed use real estate development in LA that's an eight-year project that's in motion today will be as I mentioned, they'll have residential community there. It's built around the sports arena. It also will have retail, obviously, other things, other amenities. But we will provide the backbone for that community, really working with them to how do you actually take technology to the next level and think about, again, interacting and addressing any constituent in that environment and reliably getting content that's relevant mm -hmm. to people at the right time and the right place. So. It's really interesting to be on the ground floor with an organization who's really thinking about future interactions. So if someone is in a park um, and wants to order food, how do we make sure that we know exactly where they are and they get the food delivered uh, via rickshaw or some way directly to that location? Mm. It really is next level minority report if you think about it in terms of you know meeting expectations of those who will be living potentially working and or enjoying entertainment in that type of environment so you're almost you're building profiles of people and trying to anticipate their needs is that over um, time for sure yeah. um, and yes we always do that when we're building immersive experience i think we try to start with who are the constituents that will be using these experiences and how do we best address their needs? But yeah. obviously the opportunity is really also to learn from those interactions and then make each interaction improve or be more effective for those individuals over time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, and that's the perfect segue to Lighthouse. So the Lighthouse platform, what is it and what does it do? Lighthouse is our platform that absolutely standardizes and delivers content. So if you think about a content creation, production, delivery, management, and measurement system for that content across a variety of different locations, whether that be online, virtual environment, or a physical environment, it provides the backbone of almost everything that we do. Again, in the past, I don't know about you, but growing up inside HP, we had amazing customer centers. But under each one of those customer centers was a huge production team. We often had a server in the room. You had a person assigned to that room. When you were actually preparing it for a customer, you wanted to make sure the latest content was loaded on that server. Well, if you think about Lighthouse, what we're doing now is HP could actually manage all of that content remotely. Um, you don't have to have a person assigned to that room except for the food or drink logistics that you might need. But certainly for content, making sure that that experience is consistent and you're leveraging content via the cloud and leveraging Lighthouse to make sure that that experience is consistent, it gets to the right devices and surfaces, and that those interactions are 
the latest and greatest. We still have this idea that we're either like using technology or not. But right. it, and, and so it seems like we're going through like a transition where that's no longer going to be the case. And Brightlight is the marketing aspect of that, right? Like bringing that to marketing. Like how do we blur that line completely so that there's just no difference between doing something with your friends in the physical world, using technology, technologies managing that experience as necessary to create some kind of brand experience. Is that a fair characterization? It is. And I think customers are expecting that physical experience to blend. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we talked about this when we spoke earlier, automotive being a classic situation where the physical experience is so broken compared to the digital one. So how many times have you built your dream car online and then you walk with your printout to the lot and they say, yeah, that's great. Love your dream car, but we want you to buy this car. (laughs) And and then when you do buy the car, you never, you know, the loop just never gets closed. And, and, and even our profile of how we perceive, um, people to experience the brand may be completely warped because we're only looking at it from an online perspective. So a friend of mine recently told me that they had installed, uh, GM had installed some cameras on a dealer lot. And one of the things they learned was that women only shop when no one is there. They actually come and look at vehicles when there are no salespeople. Hmm. And so that tells you. Yes. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yes. They do not want to be assaulted. And I can actually relate to this by the salespeople, you know, and they want to go spend some time. So given that, that, you know, really um, helps you provide a more robust customer profile, if you know this about how um, a, a person may want to have an experience in their physical realm versus their online realm. Yeah. Um, it's just another dimension that we just really haven't even added into our whole experience or way of thinking. Well, I mean, I don't know if you're working on auto right now actively, but you totally struck a nerve because I'm in the process of buying a car and that is exactly my experience. They have these really fancy online builders and you're like, oh, wow, you can like pick and choose. And then you call and they're like, oh, no one gets that. You can't do that. You can't order that. Or you order it and it's, you know, 12 (laughs) weeks away. It's like these guys are really cool guys. Like, I don't want to talk bad on dealers at all. They're super nice guys and they're trying, but they're totally disempowered to actually meet your expectations. And then you look at the brands and they spend so much money on marketing and the experience of driving, but somehow the experience of acquiring a vehicle is from the stone age. It seems to me to be totally out of step with anything else. And you just look and these are like really serious companies with huge budgets to deal with marketing and customer experience. I I have no idea what the disconnect is or when it's going to be solved, but it is bad. It is urgently in need of reform. Yes. And I I mean, obviously these auto dealers are big companies in and of themselves. And um, the other problem obviously is the use of data. So a couple of weeks ago was getting email after email after email from a dealer where I traded a car two years ago about getting that car service. Mm. And I'm like, I traded it back to you. You gave me a new car. (laughs) Don't (laughs) tell me about servicing that old car. Um, Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's another classic example. And again, I think in this year where customers really started navigating much more fluidly all of those different environments, they're going to have to figure out how to match and pace. So um, 
and it's hard and it's complex. And so what does the footprint in the store look like? How do you create experiences virtually, not just online? I think Glossier versus Sephora is a great example. Sephora being the leader up until this last year of really blending its online and its in-store data, its e-commerce data, which is great. Mm. But then you look at Glossier became a huge brand this year because they provided virtual environments where people, friends could band together and go try and make up virtually because they couldn't go physically. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think there's just going to be a lot of interesting innovation across all three realms. That's interesting that you brought up the friends. I read a book a while back, and I'm sure it's an older idea than that book, where it was explaining that all technologies reach this tipping point where people figure out how to use them to socialize. And when they do that, there's this hyper growth phase. And the classic example is the web. It started out as just this push, information push, where you were just reading passively. And then when there was enough technology to let people actually communicate, boom, web 2.0, et cetera. And there's, you know, in this book, they went through so many examples of that. And so that's really interesting because obviously people know this, it's not news to them. And so the, the, the folks who are working on VR experiences are trying to figure out how to get people to socialize in these virtual worlds because they know that that is the holy grail, you know? How do you think about the social aspect, not just the social data, but actually the social interaction in these physical digital crossovers? Well, it's funny you say that because that is the science of participation. There's really three components, discover, empower, connect. But but in any way, the first part is just, you know, people as humans, we love to learn, right? Yeah. We love to continually nurture ourselves. So that's one step. But the really the next two steps, which gaming companies obviously learned this a long time ago, is how do you empower people in a way to give them a meaningful contribution so mm. they feel like they actually are having um, meaning and input? And then the last part is how do you allow them and facilitate connecting with other individuals. And if you do all three of those really well, that's the magic curve, which is exactly what you're talking about, right? So the web is only an information tool was great, but once you facilitated people and you gave them a meaningful role where they actually felt like they were having the impact and you connected them with others who also had similar interests, and we all know that has a double-edged sword now, then you saw meaningful growth. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. That's really interesting about the makeup. I, I didn't know that. So could you describe that experience more? So people are, they're in VR headsets or they're just in like a... I'm not sure. I okay. haven't gone on to Glossier's. Um, I just read about it. I mean, they're valuated, I think, as a billion, one of the few unicorn billion dollar companies now. But I know that they have, um, it's probably in an online environment, but they're allowing friends to come along and creating social... Um, connections uh, to try and make up and enjoy it to experience Glossier in a virtual environment because no one can go to a store. Obviously, Glossier's uh, retail footprint is much smaller than Sephora's, but if you you probably not experienced a Sephora like um, most of us, unless you've um, gone with a friend yeah, or with yeah. your I, wife or I've what been have in you. Before. Yeah, for sure. That's a, but they're crazy, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, I, never have I been in a Sephora that hasn't been insane. Right. Well, right. obviously a lot of that got shut down this year. So how do you replicate it in a much more virtual environment? And I, I think um, not as much here, but certainly in Asia, you're seeing a lot of that social shopping. And mm. um, it's almost like a combination of, I would call it, the shopping network, but also with a social engagement component. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll see more of that now as retail evolves and 
we all try to use those platforms um, interchangeably. Interesting. You mean like, is it like a live stream with live feedback and emoji and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a, and a moderator and a, kind of like you would, I would say it's like a host. You have a host, but it's interactive, right? Mm. Instead of just watching the host passively, like you would watch Home Shopping Network, you're engaged in an environment where you can buy and you can interact and, and you're engaging with the host and with other shoppers at the same time. Yeah. And we just haven't seen as much of that here. It's full circle. We're going back to auctioneers. <laughs> so true. <laughs> well, even auctioneers, I mean, that is something we're working with auctioneers as well. So really? how do you work with a Sotheby's or any of the car auction people that are now understanding that there's a huge opportunity to tap into a much larger audience virtually? And obviously you've seen people on the phone bidding on things in the past. It's not necessarily a new phenomenon, but how do you make that experience richer and how do you blend the physical and the virtual components? What's called a hybrid event. I think that is something that everyone's considering today. How do I host a better hybrid event knowing that as we come out of COVID, some people will be there and be in person, but my audience is going to be now from now on out much larger if I could really captivate the virtual audience as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I have kids and I'm keenly aware of the education issues with COVID and they're struggling with hybrid learning as well. You have some kids in the classroom, some kids not, and the teachers asked to give the same amount of attention to both. And it's extremely challenging. And there's a technology component to that. There's a training component. I mean, frankly, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I could see it We're happening. Not. Yeah. What do, we, what do we need to get there? People are hungry for yeah. getting back to some physical. So, you know, we're talking to a number of companies looking at events the latter part of this year where their anticipation is they will have participation at a physical level, but how do they also captivate those virtual people that either may not feel comfortable attending physically or they may never attend physically. It just may be right. that they want to now have this interaction. So yes, you're right. And there are so many new platforms that help enable this. And how do you make sure that you're putting together and trying to replicate that networking as well, which is the other lost thing, I think, with classrooms that you mentioned. How do you possibly replicate the interaction and socialization that kids get in the classroom? The same, I think, is true for uh, hybrid events. Yeah, and the, the networking you mentioned, because I've been involved in some virtual events, and we've been talking about how physical events enable serendipity, like serendipitous encounters. And, you know, you could probably design software to prompt serendipitous encounters, but you would have yes. to do that. And that's not the way software is designed today. It's not. But then there also, the beautiful part of it is one of the things that I was talking with a client about is the access to the quality of speakers mm -hmm. now that it's virtual, sure. the ability to actually get amazing speakers because there just wasn't physically possible to get people in person and also allowing a much more one-on-one -on -one or one-to-few engagement with those amazing speakers. So it, it is definitely a mixed bag. And I think we're all trying to figure out what is the right balance and, and how do we meet the needs, whether you're in person or you're virtual. Yeah. And I know that Bright Lights also worked on the employee experience of remote work, right? And that's also an issue. Like, how do you enable that, quote unquote, water cooler conversation that leads to a billion dollar business or whatever. Like, how do you do totally. that? Yeah. Well, totally. And I, I think one of the key ahas for most companies this year has been the theory, I think, prior to the COVID year has been that culture is a place, a physical place. Mm -hmm. Like 
I, you know, having worked at Twitter was a great example. You know, we had chefs on four different floors. You had, I don't know how many different types of cereal that you could walk up and have any time. But now really understanding that culture is in the hearts and minds of people and how do you better facilitate those interactions and balance that obviously, because now you have companies going into people's homes, which also could be perceived as almost an invasion. And so it's really an interesting time, I think, for companies and employees to recalibrate and really figure out what that balance is. Yeah. Another topic, I guess this is like a result of bright light working across so many different industries. You have this 50,000 foot view and um, something we (laughs) talked about in our previous conversation was how the data that you're ingesting from all these different tools that you're using, you know, you're left to do the correlations and that that's a limiting factor and, and that standards may even play a role there going forward. Sure. So if we if we go back to the Lululemon example, I would say most brands are stuck holding the bag of trying to gather their data because there are so many walled gardens. So you think about even online, there's so many walled gardens where a brand would have to pull a variety of different data sources to develop a more complex or complete picture of what customer interactions are. And then you move into a virtual environment and the same could be true. You have to pull the data individually from there. And then in a physical environment, it's rare to actually get data. And what are data standards and what are engagements? What should they be Mm -hmm. in a physical environment? I think not a lot has been thought of about that. So firstly, the way we're thinking about it is if you really want to build that more robust customer profile, how do you pull all that data from all those different places and build a much more complete picture so that you can actually um, perform much better in terms of the engagement. How do you actually make your interactions better over time by having that more complete picture? Mm -hmm. For us, not only are we thinking about building that across, but also what should the standards be in a physical environment? So starting to think about what those standards are, which we've obviously thought about this a lot from a web standpoint for a long time, but rarely have we ever thought about it in a physical engagement standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's like OSHA or something, but that doesn't really count. (laughs) Yeah. Although, you know, those things are important. Safety uh, suddenly is much more important in a physical environment. And back to even disabilities, right? How do you uh, make sure that you're accessible? Yeah. Um, You're providing accessibility is certainly a physical consideration that you don't have to necessarily think about in an online environment or a virtual environment. Yeah. What gets you excited about the potential for the ultimate hybrid experience. Let's say that all of this is in place. You have the data, it's it's being correlated and you know, you're getting performance metrics from it. Paint a picture for us of the perfect outcome. I I mean for me the perfect outcome is we're meeting or exceeding the expectations both from a client perspective but also a participant perspective. So certainly the brand is providing information to participants but they're also providing information back and that's in enriching the experience both on the brand side as well as on the customer side or on the employee side and the brand side. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of this is that hopefully we'll get to that point where it really is a you know an ongoing participation exchange. I also think that there's impact uh, potential here because immersive experiences just have so much impact. So think back to your education challenges. I think us trying to do education via Zoom when we know that providing really rich content can actually have much more of an impact 
for learning, for changing people's perceptions, for helping them understand, you know, what's really happening, Um, really tapping into that and trying to figure out when do we actually truly immerse someone into this environment in a virtual way that helps them better understand and better able to take action, whatever that might be on the other side. That to me is a huge opportunity that we just often don't take advantage of, even in the online space today. I guess it's, is it like value added marketing, but turned up to 11? It's this idea that it's a true value exchange between the brand and the end user. And you're saying that the higher the amount of immersion, the more intense that effect truly is. That along with the feedback, right? So they truly can get immediate feedback that actually can improve the experience and continue to improve the experience, especially if it's immediate, that's better for the brand and it's also better for the customer. So the last thing a brand wants to do is create a whole bunch of content that is meaningless. And the last thing a customer wants to do is get it or receive it, right? So how do we... um, you know, iterate out of that, if you will, and continually improve. You know, it's funny, I was browsing on the internet a few days ago, and I had a private window open, so it didn't know who I was. And I just forgot that I was using this private tab. Oh, interesting. And and the ads were charming. I was like, oh, that's so cute. You think I'm probably a, you know, 60 year old. (laughs) Like it it was just so, it it took me back to the 80s and 90s when you were just just given ads and you were like, oh, I'm six years old and they're selling me a pickup truck. But like there is a serendipity there, I guess, is that I kind of miss. True. When everything's ultra personalized, you don't even learn about the world beyond what others know about you. Anyway, yes, I, I wonder if there's... It's so true. Yeah. There is a happy medium, I think, and especially as it relates to immersive experience. So targeting, there's no question, has changed how both advertisers, I think, and people interact. I swear my phone's listening to me <laughs> because there are times when, you know, I'll say something about something and then suddenly I'll get an ad on my phone, especially if I'm talking to my husband about something that I wouldn't normally be interested in at all. And suddenly mm. I'm served an ad. It's like, hmm, this is highly suspicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? um, so you're right. There is kind of a, you know, how do we find that balance to where there is a true value exchange that isn't creepy but also provides some serendipity because it definitely that all has seemingly gone. Occasionally there will be something that is surprising, yeah. but not very often. You know, it's funny you mentioned that the phone is listening. So the phone manufacturers and the platforms all say, we don't do that. But then you're like, I could swear you're doing it. But it's actually way creepier if they're not doing it and that ad still came up because that means that your profile led them to think you would like that even if you weren't talking about it. So... Right. It's not like um, comforting to know that they're not listening. It's like actually, wow, like the <laughs> intensity of or the accuracy of these models is so strong that it doesn't even matter. They don't have to listen to you say that word. Yeah, it's an odd combination, right? Because we just talked about the car dealers not knowing anything and not being <laughs> completely disconnected to where you'd say you have so much data about me. And not to, I would say this is true for the grocery channel as well. And in, in many cases, mm-hmm. they know so much about you. They have so much information and then, and they can't seem to reconcile it in a way that provides you benefit. And then you have the opposite is true, which you truly have some um, lookalike targeting that's actually doing a very good job of creepily determining what you think you might need and figuring it out. Yeah. So 
you know, I do believe that self-direction, and this is why I, I wrote Marketing the Participation Age, actually, instead of trying to game the system and target people and treat them like targets, which I have a kind of an offensive reaction to, mm. let's treat them like participants and give them a voice and allow them to actually tell us what they want and and truly have a value exchange. And my hope is that we'll get to that point at some point. That's cool. That's a nice vision. Anything new going on at Bright Light that's exciting for you? It's really busy. I think what's encouraging is to see the amount of momentum happening across a lot of different categories. Mm. So um, healthcare, a lot of innovation. Obviously, this has been in some ways a great year for healthcare, but also challenging for them trying to figure out how to manage experiences, again, across all those different ways that they need to interact with people. Yeah, you know, experience management, I would say, as a category as a whole, and really thinking about it through omnichannel is what really has our, us um, excited. I see a lot of retailers trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. What's our store moving forward? It's not what it was yesterday. Uh, we really want to reimagine it and rethink it. Yeah. The fact that a lot of brands are reaching out to us and trying to figure out, you know, how can you help us figure this out? It's super exciting. Maybe my physical store isn't a place where commerce happens. Maybe it's a place where experiences happen Mm. and then commerce all moves online. So that's the answer that some, some people have had. Others are like, help us try to reimagine how we help customers interact with our product or service in a new and different way. And it's not the traditional retail model. Mm -hmm. And again, if we think about retail or grocery, I think is a great example where Again, we talked about grocery having the apps in place where you could actually uh, transact. You could place an order at Walmart or Target years ago, but I don't know if you tried to, you'd go to the parking lot and you'd end up actually walking in the building because they didn't figure out the rest of the experience. Uh Well, now with COVID, they did, right? So will curbside ever go away? Well, what will it look like moving forward? I think a lot of of companies are starting to think about beyond just dealing with the immediacy of COVID, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. That is fascinating. All right, Dana. Well, thanks very much. I Oh, it's your kitty. (laughs) Hello. Yes, my cat has joined our call. (laughs) (laughs) Your cat has joined the chat. Yes. Cool. Well, thanks so much for lending your time and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.